guys, welcome to another Tim's Takeaway. Today, in this episode, we are going to be blending a few things together. And we are going to be talking about some soft tissue injuries, orthopedic injuries, and then the one thing that they really have in common, which is bleeding. So when I do this as part of an EMR or an EMT class, I like to bring these all together, primarily because you know, the anatomy, the physiology, uh, the pathophysiology of a lot of this stuff also blends in very well together, as well as with shock. So uh, it really, to me, makes a little bit of sense that when I'm trying to learn something, I put like things together, and I can build upon what my uh, knowledge and previous knowledge of these things may be. So with that said, Let's dive in here and take a look at some of the anatomy and physiology of the systems that are involved for bleeding, uh, orthopedic injuries, as well as soft tissue injuries. So I think we're going to start on the outside of the body and we're going to work our way in. So the first thing that we want to realize is that, of course, the skin is a organ. And as we, if you've listened to shock, you know that it is an organ that probably is one that can go for a longer period of time without a lot of perfusion to it. So in some cases, in some of the literature, we're talking up to about six hours before we really start running into some major problems with the skin. But it is the largest organ in the body, and it's pretty tough, and very but it's still very susceptible to injuries. And when those injuries occur, it can expose blood vessels, nerves, and bones. That's the reason why all these subjects kind of come together. So in these cases, we have to learn about controlling the bleeding, how to prevent any type of uh, uh, increasing risk for infection. We want to be able to protect those wounds from further damage as well. And we're going to find out that it's really becoming important to make sure that we apply some dressings there. So skin varies. The thickness actually does vary. It depends on whether or not you are younger or older. So it's really thin and those very young and very old. So when I think to my patients, now the area that I am in has a very high geriatric population. And when I take a look at their skin, it's sometimes not an uncommon thing to be able to see all of the little veins and vessels and capillaries that are under there. It almost looks like tissue paper that somebody may have just made a little bit wet. So it becomes very thin. Now, we do have other areas that are much thinner in our body, just as you and I are sitting here right now, or maybe you're out running. I don't know. Just don't fall. Um, but when you're taking a look at something like the eyelids or the lips and the ears, you know, when you get into those, those are much thinner areas. So there are, though, two layers that we want to be dealing with or that we need to become familiar with. The epidermis, which is the external layer and this is something that is really covering all the body and it does have several layers that that are composed of it but we then move into the next layer which is the one that we have to be worried about as well which is the dermis right and the dermis is going to be the inner layer of skin this is where the hair follicles and the sweat glands and the sebaceous glands are and this is also 
where we're going to find the blood vessels are going to be inside the dermis. So this is where your skin is able to get the nutrients from the oxygen. And the skin is covering, as I said earlier, it's covering all the external surfaces of the body. And it does act as a, uh, a way in which it's a barrier to protect against any type of infection. And it's really cool in the fact that it helps to maintain fluid balance. Now, before I forget, there are openings in the body that uh, for the skin that are basically mucous membranes. And when we talked about some various subjects earlier in previous podcasts, we did talk about those. We talked about like the mucosal membranes that are inside the nose. We had said about um, if we were given pharmacological issues for the rectum, um, those would be other areas. If you take a look inside of your mouth as well, there's mucosal layers there that we would have to deal with. So anyway, when you get into the skin making a whole lot of different uh, barriers for infection, it also works as part of a way in which we regulate body temperature. Hence the reason why you sweat, right? Because it's one way that we can try to get rid of some of that excess heat. It is a sensory organ. So anytime that something brushes against it, you know as well as I do that uh, it sometimes you get that sudden feeling of something itching or you get that sudden feeling like something is crawling on your skin. That is part of that whole sensory issue. So if there is any break in the skin, it does allow for a potential for infection. Um, we also have loss of temperature control because if we have more breaks in the skin, it can cause a significant problem. And... We look at ways in which soft tissue injuries can really affect us, and it affects the skin. Those usually are dealing with some type of closed injuries, which we'll talk about as well as with fractures and maybe some bruising that's occurring underneath the skin. We will also see different things such as open injuries, where it could be a fracture, it could be a laceration. And of course, then we want to uh, worry about one of the most painful things that we could probably be dealing with, which is then going to be burns. Our skeletal muscles are also referred to, though, as striated muscles, right? So we have our skin, and then we move into the muscles themselves. And we recall that they attach bones and they usually have different areas or they have crossovers for at least one joint, right? So they allow for voluntary muscle control. And a lot of times this voluntary muscle control, because it is under the brain, it, you, or under the control of the brain, it responds to commands for specific body parts. Now, skeletal muscle makes up a largest portion of our body's muscle mass, and they are all supplied with arteries, veins, and nerves, hence the reason why, again, we're blending all this together. And skeletal muscle tissues are attached to bones by tendons. So with smooth muscles, we also have a smooth muscle, which is involuntary muscles, and they are working with automatic work within the body. So you can think of a few of them. You know, we can talk about uh, smooth muscles such as, uh, you know, the intestine, right? You don't have to think about digesting food through your colon. It just does it. It's part of that involuntary muscle movement for us. Cardiac muscle, though, is a very specific muscle and it's involuntary and it has its own regulatory system. 
So when we talk more about bleeding, we can talk about the way that the cardiac cells and the way that the heart is going to work in response to a loss of blood. Now, the skeleton, in addition to, so let's, let me back up before I go too far, right? So we had the skin. Then we moved into and identified that there are nerves and capillaries and blood vessels that are there. Then we moved into the muscles. And in the muscles, we said, particularly with skeletal muscles, we also identified that there are um, blood supply. So therefore, there's going to be veins and arteries and capillaries as well. Now we move into the skeleton and we're moving into the bones themselves. So we know that the skeleton gives us our ability of our form. We look like a human being, right? We don't look like a dog or anything like that. And it does protect our internal organs. And it gives us the ability to move around. Now, give or take, there's about 206 bones in the human body. Now, the bones produce blood cells. And they produce these blood cells in the bone marrow. So if we go back and take a look at um, the pharmacology section, we had talked about intraosseous, and we talked about the fact that some medications can be administered via the intraosseous route. Now, you may not be able to do that as an EMT, but a paramedic has the ability to do so. So the other things that we need to take a look at is let's break down a few of the areas, right? So if we recall that from the bones and, and the skeleton, right, all the way back in the human body, that the skull is really one of those structures that is designed to protect the brain. So it is very vault-like. And the aspect here is, is that it doesn't allow um, any real opening in there. It's truly a vault. So really the only way that things get into the brain, per se, is actually through the foreman magnum, right? Unless we open it up in another way. The, the ribs... Um, are designed or what people refer to as a thoracic cage are going to be there to design to protect the heart, the lungs, and a lot of the great vessels. Um, in, in addition to that, the uh, different areas such as the lower ribs um, are able to protect the liver and the spleen. The spinal column is uh, able to um, protect the spinal cord. The scapula is able to help protect some of the uh, rib cage and protect everything with the rib cage, try to keep everything together. And uh, we also realize that the clavicle is going to be something that is attached by ligaments to the sternum on one end and to the acronium process on the other. So these are all areas that are within that shoulder area that can cause problems for us and we may have to treat them. Little hint, usually these are things we have to take a look at. Now the upper extremities go from the shoulder to the fingertips and this is usually what we're referring to as the arm and we start off at the top is going to be the humerus and then it moves down to the elbow and in the forearm we have two bones in there that are going to be the radius in the ulna. And remember one way to remember that is that you check for a radial pulse which is on the same side as the radial bone, right? So that also means that that's on the thumb side. Just to hopefully give you a little hint there. 
So the hands are uh, then going to have the wrist bones, which are the carpals, and then the hand bones will then be the metacarpals. And of course, the fingers are going to be known as the phalanges. And we move a little distal and we find that we then have the pelvis. And the pelvis is actually something that really helps to support a lot of body weight. And it protects the structures with inside the pelvis, such as the bladder and the rectum. And then when we get to females, it also helps protect the reproductive organs. So just real quick, something with the pelvis, you know, when I have folks that are uh, complaining of pelvic pain versus hip pain, remember one is a joint, the other one is not. So the hip is a joint and that is part of the femur um, and that is part of that thigh bone where the pelvis is actually going to be more weight, uh, really protects a lot of the weight bearing part of the body. Okay, um, The femur itself is a long, pretty powerful bone that connects in a ball and socket joint to the pelvis, and this is where we talk about that being actually the hip. The lower leg has two bones, the fibia and the, and the uh, tibia, and the tibia is more along the lines of the shin bone, and it connects to the kneecap, and then the fibula really runs behind and then it gets beside the tibia. So if you think of the um, the fibula is going to be um, behind it and then it kind of runs to the side. So think of it being on the little piggy toe. Um, probably not the most uh, uh, medically uh, identified term, but, you know, it works. You know what I mean. And the big toe is going to be more along the lines of the tibia. And of course, the ankle bones are going to be the tarsals, and the foot bones will be the metatarsals, and the toes will be the phalanges again. So the bones of the skeleton really do give us a nice little framework, which the muscles and the tendons are then attached to. And a joint is going to be formed wherever two bones come into contact with each other. And these joints are held together usually through um, some fibrous structure, which is typically a capsule, which is then supported and strengthened by bands of a lot of fibrous tissue, which would be then ligaments. So moving joints, you know, these are the ends of the bones that are going to be covered with cartilage. This is where uh, they're able to move back and forth. And you always hear people say, well, I have some synovial joint issues. Synovial joint fluid actually exists inside of each one of these joints. And this is what is allowing for things to move freely. So it's kind of like oil in a car. You know, it's that lubricant that's actually going to help us out. So you end up with some problems or joints allow for some circular motion. And, and when those things uh, bleh, when those things do not work well, then we can start running into maybe dislocations, um, such as at the shoulder joint. You may have hinge movement issues, maybe at the knee or the elbow. Um, and then, um, you know, those are things that are going to, going to need to require a different uh, assessment and other folks are going to have to take a look at that. So we kind of hit all that and it was just kind of a review, right? So if you're looking for more information on that, um, I would suggest going back to uh, my YouTube page where I have a bunch of information, I think four-part series on um, the human body. And that should help you out with some of those issues as well. So we're going to dive back in here to let's take a look at um, now 
the blood, right? So the blood is actually moved around because it requires three different things. It requires the pump, which would be the heart, the containers are going to be the blood vessels, and then the fluid, which is actually going to, of course, you know, be the blood. Um, so the blood is designed to carry oxygen and other nutrients into the system, and then we want to carry the waste products away. So that does require that the heart have a well-established blood supply, and it is able to pump then from blood from the atrium down into the ventricles, and therefore it pushes it all the way through through the rest of the body. So always keep in mind that the blood vessels that we're talking about, the high-pressure systems, are going to be the arteries, and these are things that are carrying blood away from the heart. And then we have the veins, which are carrying blood back to the heart. So I think in shock, I probably brought up, as a matter of fact, I know I brought up, the fact that you break things down, right? So you go from the arteries to the arterioles, which are going to be the smaller vessels, and they connect the arteries and the capillaries. So then we move into the capillaries, which is where the cells of the body are really able to link everything. This is where all that exchange takes place. And then we get, after the exchange has taken place, things are going to go back out. And now they go to the venules. And these are the more smaller, thin-walled vessels. And they then empty into the veins. And, of course, then we found out that the veins carry blood back to the heart. And this is how the whole system is working. So to get blood to where it needs to be, think of the arteries as the high-pressure system and the veins as the low-pressure system. Those are going to be things to come back and help us out in a little bit to help identify the way things are bleeding. Now, blood contains some very uh, uh, important pieces of material that we need to be familiar with, such as red blood cells. We have to have enough red blood cells to be able to transport oxygen and carbon dioxide, you know, so that's how oxygen gets to where it needs to be. White blood cells are designed to fight off infection. So if they do a blood test in the hospital, they usually are checking a few things, and they check the platelets, uh, which are blood the way we form blood clots. And they also check for a white blood cell count, and they look to see that if that number is high, it usually indicates that the body is trying to fight off some form of an infection. And then we also look at red blood cells, and red blood cells are going to be the way in which we can transport oxygen. And this is why people become very concerned if an individual becomes anemic. Now, blood clots, for the most part, as I said about the pla I'm sorry about the platelets earlier, right? So the platelets are where the blood clots actually occur. So what ends up happening is that if the uh, there is a problem and you start bleeding, right? So you get an open laceration. You have an, uh, an open wound in which you start bleeding. The body's response is to try to clot that off. That is what is normally supposed to happen. So the platelets are getting there along with the red blood cells, the white blood cells. Everything is being transported there through plasma, which is the fluid portion of that blood, right? So when it gets there, that's what it's supposed to do. Now, blood clot also means that, you know, if blood stays in a certain place, it cannot, it may not move. Uh, what's the body's ability to clot? You know, do they have some type of disease process that is preventing them from clotting? 
Do they have a disease process that actually in, uh, encourages the blood to clot a little more? And we also have to take a look at changes that occur within the blood vessels itself. So we have to account for all those things. And then we also have to take a look at the fact that when there is a problem with bleeding, that the autonomic nervous system is the thing that kicks in. And it releases some of that epinephrine. When it releases that epinephrine or norepinephrine, that's part of the autonomic nervous system, and it increases the heart rate of that individual. And it is trying to push those platelets to the area so that they can actually help seal it off. Now, that is the basis for a lot of ways in which we try to help control bleeding, right? We need to stop the blood from coming back out. So we're going to work with the body system, knowing what we know, to try and enhance the clotting factors. And we'll talk more about those in a little bit when we get into treatment. So your body is always monitoring constantly whether or not the blood vessels need to constrict or dilate. And it also uh, works on redirecting or shunting that blood to the heart, brains, and lungs because that's what needs to uh, the three organ systems that we're looking at that are going to be the most important for it. And it works in a way in which we can maintain that homeostasis. So we don't want things to fail, but at the same time, our body has started to recognize that there's a problem and it's not just going to sit back and, and wait. It's going to react immediately. You know, when we get into how the pathophysiology of all this fits together, we have to go back and realize that the wounds that we have, whether it be from that soft tissue injury or the way that, actually particularly soft tissue injuries or even fractures, is that the healing process that occurs is natural. And there's a lot of overlapping stages. And the whole goal of any healing process is to try to maintain that homeostasis. So the first thing that happens is going to be the cessation of bleeding. We need to stop the bleeding because that is the primary concern. The body recognizes this. So once the bleeding has been controlled, then there is this inflammation process that is going to occur. And this is where cells are moving into the damaged area. And think of them as a construction crew, right? They are coming in. They are trying to rebuild everything. Now, white blood cells are going to also go to that area. And they're going to be like the soldiers that are protecting the construction area. They are the ones that are trying to combat any of the uh, pathogens, whether it be bacteria or viral, coming into that exposed tissue. Now, the lymphocytes destroy the bacteria, and this is why you will hear people often say, oh, well, I have an inflamed lymph node. Well, you may have an inflamed lymph node because it is part of the immune response that, that occurs. Mast cells are going to release histamine, and when histamine is released, this is why, uh, you know, sometimes people are going to recognize that their vessels look a whole lot uh better, right? The histamine reaction allows things to um, essentially dilate a little bit, right? So those things are going to occur as well. So inflammation does lead to the removal of some type of that foreign material. So I want you to think of something like this. Most of you have probably had a splinter. 
And if you were not able to get the splinter out, you will hear people say, oh, you know, it'll just move itself out. Well, first off, remember that a splinter is not a living thing, right? It is not something that is going to just grow feet and back out of your body. What happens is the inflammation that occurs from the skin is actually pushing this foreign material out. So this is the way that it works. It's actually inflaming. And you've seen this most likely in your own body that way. So when we start dealing with the damaged soft tissues, new layers of cells are going to need to be moved into this region and are going to grow, and new blood vessels are going to form. So the body is attempting to bring more oxygen and nutrients to that injured tissue. So the body is, again, reconstructing itself. Now, the last stages is when the collagen gives stability to that damaged tissue. And it brings a lot of those borders together, those wound borders together, and it closes up that tissue. Now, collagen is more of a fibrous protein. It's found in scar tissue. It's also in hair, bones, and other connective tissue. But collagen cannot restore the damaged tissue back to its original strength. So you've oftentimes heard people say, oh, there's too much scar tissue to be able to do something with. Again, this comes back to looking at the collagen issues. So that's with open injuries. Well, what about closed injuries? So there's some things that we need to remember about any type of closed injury. And one of those would be a contusion, another would be a hematoma, and those two are usually things that we would normally take a look at, um, of saying, well, a contusion. You know, this is where some type of blunt force hits you, and the epidermis, that outer layer of the skin again, remains intact, but the cells within inside that dermis, underneath that layer, are damaged. And there's therefore small blood vessels are torn. And this is when you see that black and blue discoloration build up. Um, a medical term for that would be ecchymosis, right? So that's a contusion. A hematoma is a collection of blood within damaged tissue, um, or it could be inside a body cavity. So pulmonary issues, we could have a... Um, you know, uh, hematoma to the to the uh, cardio. He, uh, blah, blah, sorry, um, you could deal with a, a bruise to uh, the heart to the lungs. You can end up with different body cavities as well. So, where are these things occurring? And wherever large blood vessels are damaged, these have a tendency to bleed rapidly. And this usually is where you get a lot of extensive tissue damage. So, hematoma. Um, you know, we've heard of subdural hematomas, epidural hematomas. Again, it's that collection of blood that is within that body cavity or damaged tissue. So one other thing that we need to take a look at and recall is there is a process or a thing known as a crush injury. Okay, so a crush injury is a the force that is actually applied to a specific body area. And this extent of the damage really here is dependent on how long the force was there, how much was actually applied. And really what happens with a crush injury is that there is a lot of compression of the soft tissues. So therefore, it cuts off the circulation to that area and it is now allow or not allowing the blood flow to come back. And so it doesn't allow anything to go in, doesn't allow anything to come back out. So all of the um, bad stuff really starts to build up in that area. 
and we can run into a problem. So if a person is trapped for pretty much longer than about four hours and arterial blood flow is compromised, then you can develop what is known as crush syndrome. And that can be something that is very detrimental to our patients. And while we're sitting here talking about that at a four hour time limit, keep in mind that crush injuries can occur um, early as well. I mean, you're talking about grandma who may have fallen and broken her hip and nobody finds her for the next two hours um, or maybe for 45 minutes she's been in that same position. Those things really can cause a problem for us as well. So when people have those problems and they have a crushed injury or a crush injury, sometimes these tissues are crushed beyond repair. And when muscle cells die, they release some harmful substances. One of those things is actually potassium. And they release this and these substances when they release are sitting in a specific area. So these, when we release the, the area, um, the limb is now freed and blood flow is returned. This can create a problem because all of that bad stuff is going back to the heart. So it really becomes important that as a BLS provider that you recognize that if there is a potential for a crush injury, that those folks, we probably got to keep them there for a little bit of time because the IV fluid that ALS can provide before we lift the object off of that person is of utmost importance. And there are some other things that they can do, and it gets very complicated in the process of how we change things around in the body and well beyond this section of our podcast. So freeing that body from somebody who's entrapped can create that potential again for that cardiac arrest and essentially um, can also cause some renal failure later on. There's another thing that is known as a compartment syndrome. A compartment syndrome is where edema and swelling um, cause increased pressure within a closed soft tissue compartment. So compartment syndrome, actually, um, I've heard some folks have this as a problem in their calves, um, and they have to measure the pressures that are inside that compartment. And when those pressures are high, it interferes with circulation, and it can cause uh, a painful limb. So the problem that, or the reason why it uh, becomes painful is that um, the oxygen and nutrients that are going to the, that limb are impaired. So you can think of it the same way, very similar to a heart attack, right? So when we know that we have a heart attack or a stroke, it is a blockage uh, that is preventing blood flow to go to that specific area. And as a result, that causes some type of issue. Well, in the heart, we know that there are um, nerves that are going to be around there and it, it detects that there's a problem. So it's ischemia that is actually caused that. Same type of deal happens only now we're dealing with more skeletal muscles um, that can cause a problem for this. So the longer that this actually occurs, the greater the risk for those tissues to die. And we have to really continuously reassess people. We have to make sure that we check their skin color, their temperature, look for distal pulses to the injury site, particularly if you suspect that there's a crush injury. And then we also need to look for um, damage, particularly to any type of internal organs. Now, as we are giving you a precursor, right, I'm giving you a precursor for some things that we need to do for treatment. And by the way, Hopefully, you have recognized that oftentimes if we can understand this pathophysiology, 
that you can start to predict things that you do need to do um, to help our patients. So as an example, if I am going to be dealing with splinting later on, right, we're going to talk about splinting. We're going to realize that if I occlude off uh, that injured limb um, by accident or on purpose, you know, I don't want to say on purpose, but by accident, um, recognizing that early is going to be uh, very vital. So we can recognize these things by doing a great assessment of our patients, and that means that we have to touch them. So that really wraps up a lot of the good things, or most of the things in relationship here to the closed injuries. Now, what about open injuries? Well, there's primarily four types that we're going to take a look at. They include abrasions, lacerations, uh, avulsions, and some penetrating wounds. So with an abrasion, remember that this is some type of uh, uh, injury in which the superficial layer of the skin is actually removed. So it looks like it's basically a scrape. Um, many of us as little children uh, playing with matchbox cars, at least myself, um, always wore our knees out in our jeans because we were on the floor playing matchbox cars. A laceration is another one. This is more of a, of a jagged cut, usually caused by some sharp object, but it can have a uh, reaction as a result of some significant blunt force that actually tears that tissue. An avulsion is where a piece of the uh, skin is going to basically, it's like a flap. It just kind of like hangs there. Um, usually there is some pretty significant bleeding, but don't remove the avulsion because um, it really a lot of times you can actually put this back over the wound and it'll actually help it heal. Um, so I know my avulsions, I've had a couple of avulsions where it was basically, uh, I was, uh, being accident prone with a hammer and kind of hit it between the nail and the hammer. However, I did that, whatever. Uh, but I had an avulsion and just putting that back over, putting that flap over actually helped heal it over time. An amputation is different. An amputation is where the body part is completely severed. So it's not going to just be a portion of the skin. It's going to be a complete amputation. Now, penetrating wounds, there's a couple different things that you can take a look at here that includes the fact that there is something that has gone inside the body. So some foreign material has actually gone inside the body, and a problem with anything like that means that we could have an impaled object. An impaled object is where that object is actually still inside, um, and we don't remove impaled objects except for basically two issues, an impaled object we don't want to, or we would remove it if it interferes with their airway management or it would interfere with uh, CPR. Now, I'll tell you the latter one there, that CPR issue is, is that if they have a Catan sword through their chest, um, removing that to do CPR on them is probably not advisable because they're dead. Um, you know, so a role is there. It's kind of tough to get people to change that aspect. But, um, you know, if there is a, again, a Catan sword going through their chest um, and they're dead, they're, they're dead right? Stabbings and shootings usually have, can have multiple penetrating injuries. So you have to make sure that you're doing a good thorough assessment of the patient. You have to expose them. And here you're trying to count the number of penetrating injuries. Your job is to identify that there's a penetration. It is not to identify whether or not that is an entrance or an exit wound. 
Blast injuries can have multiple penetrating injuries. So if you're talking about um, an explosion is basically what we're talking about. There's three areas that we take a look at. There is the primary blast where there is this blast wave itself that is moving and pressure changes suddenly occur, right? This secondary, by the way, wounds there usually occur from hollow organs because of the pressure changes. Secondary blast injuries are those that uh, damage results from a lot of the flying debris. And this can cause multiple um, penetrating wounds. And finally, that tertiary blast is actually the victim or that patient is actually being thrown by the explosion. And they may go onto an object and then other things can fall on top of them as well. So anytime that you're considering a blast injury, you must consider all of those different factors. In all of these wounds or these discussions thus far, we have to come back and realize that we have to look for the mechanism of injury. And during patient assessment, you know, it's always, is it MOI or is it NOI? Well, the mechanism of injury is somewhere along the lines that you are looking for that force that it was used to, to break a bone or cause a dislocation. This could be a direct blow to the bone that causes it to fracture. Um, this may be some indirect force, which may cause a dislocation at a different point. So, you know, if they fall down and extend their arms out, you know, is that enough that it's actually um, causing a, a dislocation at the shoulder joint? Could this be some type of twisting force that actually is damaging the ligaments in the knee? You see this all the time in football. And don't forget about those high energy injuries. You know, we're talking about guns or, um, you know, uh, significant stops uh, like if a car hits a tree you know those are significant high energy injuries and we have to account for everything including the internal organs so a significant mechanism of injury is not always necessary to fracture a bone it could be some type of slight force I had a, a patient one time in which they broke their bone literally because of a disease process they were just standing there and they instantly fractured their bone um, they fractured a leg bone, actually. Um, and unfortunately, because of the disease process that they had, it actually caused, uh, it was from osteoporosis um, and some other factors that were ongoing, um, actually caused the individual to lose part of their leg as a result of that. You know, and speaking of fractures, there are some things that we usually like to take a look at. Um, a fracture is going to be a break in that bone. So it's a, the bone is usually to be a continuous piece, right? So if it breaks, it can break anywhere along the surface of the bone. And there's a lot of different types of patterns that we would take a look at. Um, you will hear some of our older uh, folks, including myself, sometimes talk about a compound fracture. Well, that is an open fracture. Okay, so we've eliminated the word compound. It meant that there was two different things. Um, but with an open fracture, there is an external wound. And this is usually caused typically by the same blow that actually fractured the bone. Or the broken bone ends actually lacerate the skin. They actually come out. So you need to treat any injury that breaks the uh, skin as a truly as a possible open fracture and that's why we don't call it compound so much anymore because you may not necessarily see the bone there but if it's over that area it has the potential to be a uh, an open fracture 
So fractures also uh, can be described whether the bone is moved from its normal position. So a non-displaced fracture may be referred to typically as a hairline fracture. It's really just a simple crack of the bone. And a lot of times it's very difficult to distinguish between it being a contusion or a sprain. And that's why uh, x-rays are necessary to identify whether or not a fracture is there. A displaced fracture is going to be one where there's actual deformity. It's distorted. Um, so this may cause the limb to be shortened a little bit. Maybe it's angulated to one side versus the other. Or you may see that it's completely rotated. There are uh, some specific terms that you may hear uh, people talk about fractures, such as communicated. Uh, communicated fracture is where the bone is broken in more than two fragments. Um, an epiphyseal is a fracture that is really at the growth section, and particularly this occurs in children and can cause some uh, growth abnormalities. A green stick fracture is always one that I love to hear about all the time because it's just like breaking uh, uh, um, a tree. Like if you were out in the woods as a little kid, you go to break a, break a branch and you find out that it was a live branch. And when you broke it, it was green and you, it really was tough to move apart. So that's the same type of deal, right? It is a fracture that passes only part through, partly through the shaft of the bone. And it does. It looks almost like that's why they call it a green stick fracture. An incomplete fracture is one that doesn't run the whole way through the bone. Um, an oblique fracture is where the bone has been broken at an angle. A pathological fracture is going to be one where it's um, at a weakened section. Usually, as I said earlier, that would be what that lady had earlier. Um, Sorry, yeah, said lady. Anyway, she was a patient that I had earlier before where she broke her leg because of a pathological issue because of a bone degeneration disease, right? Um, a spinal fracture is one in which there's a, usually a twisting force and it goes around the bone. And then finally, one of the last ones that you may hear people say is there's a transverse fracture. Um, this is one that goes basically straight across the bone. So we need to suspect. Again, we're not going to diagnose whether or not it is a fracture or not. Um, I have seen some pretty bad dislocations, um, some pretty bad wounds that I thought was definitely a fracture, um, and it wasn't. It was, uh, you know, there. It, they did the X-rays, found out that it was not. It was just a lot of bad soft tissue damage. So what I would tell you is, is that the word suspect is probably your best thing. Look for the deformity. Find out about tenderness. Patients that are uh, experiencing or what you believe to be that suspected fracture, again, you can be looking at the fact that they're going to guard that area. They're not going to want you to touch it. So they will guard it very well. Um, at that point, you also need to take a look for any type of swelling that may be there. Um, so swelling, usually when you try to compare that, you may be able to compare one side versus the other. Look for bruising. Again, you want to look for any type of that black and blue area. And if you touch the area, um, you may find that there's crepitus where the bones are actually grinding together. Um, there may be some false motion where um, they're trying to move that arm and it's going in a different way than what it was supposed to be. You may also see some exposed bone fragments that are there. And of course, usually you will you typically feel or have them identify that there's a lot of pain in that area. 
Um, and by the way, speaking of that pain, this is when we would start talking about things such as a distracting injury, right? If you break your arm or you break your leg, it may distract from the fact that you also have a cut on your arm, right? So it's like your body's triaging that pain response. And you may also end up with issues such as locked joints in which the patient's unable to move that joint or that extremity. Besides a fracture, one of the other things that's kind of tough to tell about is actually looking at dislocation. So a dislocation is really where the, the joint in the bone ends are no longer in contact. So one that we usually hear a lot about is going to be a shoulder dislocation or a hip dislocation. And the problem that usually occurs with these is that those ligaments that are supporting that area are typically torn. And this usually is a result of, uh, you know, it's usually torn completely and allows those bone, den bone ends to separate. So a fracture dislocation could be a combination injury, and I have seen that as well. I had a, a young girl who uh, was playing soccer, and um, when she came out of goal, she uh, started finding out that uh, when she got hit and fell, um, she actually fractured her femur and had a dislocated kneecap as well. Um, so sometimes a dislocated joint will spontaneously reduce itself, and it can return to its normal position before your assessment's even there. But... Um, you will be able to confirm that dislocate. You, you can't. Uh, you will be able to confirm the dislocation only by getting a good patient history. Um, that dislocation does not spontaneously reduce uh, is a, is going to be a serious problem. So they need to go to the hospital. And as I said before, fingers, shoulders, um, elbows can dislocate as well, and of course the knee. Um, so look for signs and symptoms of that dislocation. These things may include some deformity, some swelling. Uh, there may be some pain that is aggravated by any attempt to really move it, which also means that that would also be tenderness. So if you touch it and there's pain, that's tenderness. Um, so you may see that there's a, a locked joint. Again, you know, they're not able to move it effectively. And they could have some numbness and tingling to the to the distal area. Sprains are pretty common. Um, I think most people have said that they've had uh, a sprained ankle. This is usually a result of uh, a joint that has been twisted and it's been stretched beyond its normal range of motion. And this is where some of the ligaments are actually stretched. And in some cases, they could be torn. Um, now, sprains can go from being very mild to severe. And uh, the most vulnerable ones are usually your ankles, your shoulders, and your knee. And really, after the injury, the alignment really comes back into place a lot better. So um, this is why, you know, you hear people say they stretch all the time because it tries to keep those, those joints in alignment and, and reduce the risk of injury with the muscles. A strain is a pulled muscle. Um, a strain is a is that pulled muscle where stretching and tearing of that muscle causes some pain or could be some swelling, and there may even be some bruising to the area around it as well. But there is no ligament or joint damage here that occurs. So it's a strain to the muscle itself, and usually there's no deformity. You may find that there is some swelling to that area, but really it's, uh, um, it's just having a lot of people who have point tenderness. So when you touch it to that area, that's where things are going to actually be painful for them. I had said earlier about amputations, you know, an amputation is going to be that 
Um, typically, it's an extremity that is uh, completely severed from the body, whether it be fingers, arms, uh, legs. This is including the bone all the way through the ligaments. So complications that we have with a lot of these things is that, first off, um, it's not just if there's any type of fracture or any type of injury from an orthopedic area. It's not just involving the skeletal system, but it's also um, something that's going to change and affect the entire system. So this means that, um, you know, the likelihood of having a complication really depends on where it's at, um, depends on the patient and whether or not they have any other comorbid factors. And what we mean by that is taking a look at other disease processes that they may have. Uh, you start taking a look at the way that we can prevent any type of contamination for an open fracture. Really just brush away any obvious debris that's there. A lot of times it's just a little common sense. But don't probe into the open area. Um, you know, we don't want to push anything in there or don't want to cause any more damage either um you know but if you are doing wound packing which we'll talk about later um that is something that you definitely need to make sure that you're that you're aware of you can also reduce reduce a lot of this risk um of long-term disability by trying to prevent any type of further injury you know uh maybe we can uh look and make sure that we're reducing the risk of wound infection by keeping everything clean you know or are we going to you know clean that wound out before we actually uh wrap it up and again, those are things that are typically going to happen in an OR, but if you're talking about an isolated injury, these are things that we may need to take a look at. So when you assess the severity of this injury, um, usually we're talking in trauma about that whole golden hour is um, not just critical for life, but we start taking a look at things to preserve the way that the limb is going to work as well. So you have any suspected open fracture or vascular injury, it really is something that is considered to be a critical emergency, and we need to move quickly to our uh, to the most appropriate facility. If you're looking for those things with uh, external bleeding, if we're talking about significant problems with external bleeding, you know, then um, blood is going to typically look different than what most people think about. Um, it may be really dark red. It could be bright red. And we usually are asking people, and I love this, everybody always asks, you know, what is the, how much blood loss do you think they had? Well, it's very difficult to distinguish that because it depends on the surface that they're in. Um, if they're laying in a bed um, or they're on the ground, you know, how much has been absorbed by the ground as well. So um, really, patients do not tolerate blood loss volumes greater than like 20%. We really don't do well with those. And you can refer back to shock in relationship to some of those things as well. So checking their vital signs, you know, we're talking about we would expect to see an increase in heart rate and increased respiratory rate. Um, those are the first two things we would start to see because of Changes related to the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine as part of the, um, uh, as we go into part of the sympathetic nervous system. We also may see that early on you may have a normal to a uh, slight increase in our blood pressure, but later on um, you're going to see that that decrease if we do not stop them from moving into decompensated shock. So how well they or how well they compensate for it really is uh, depending upon that individual. You know, usually we can donate a unit of blood, which is about 500 milliliters. So what is 500 milliliters? Think about it. 
500 milliliters is about 20 mil, or I'm sorry, yeah, about 20 ounces of fluid. So if you took a 20 ounce water bottle, it's about 500 milliliters of fluid. And um, really, for the most part, most people can handle that. But again, um, it depends on what their medical conditions may be. So a couple different types of bleeding that we need to take a look at. Arterial bleeding is going to be under pressure. We know that the arteries are under pressure, so therefore it makes more of a spurting type deal. Um, this is something that's probably going to be brighter red in color because of the oxygen content that is there. Venous blood is darker red, and that's because there's a lower oxygen concentration that is there. It doesn't spurt. It's usually something that is just flowing. It flows freely. Capillary bleeding is going to be uh, a dark red, and it oozes. So you can think of capillary bleeding as though you were dealing with somebody that you just had a uh, blood glucose drawn, right? So you stick their finger. You're actually accessing the capillary. You can see how it just oozes, right? Um, the clotting process, as we start getting into a lot of these things, bleeding really does stop rather quickly. I mean, usually within about 10 minutes, there's not so much of a big issue. So uh, when the skin is broken, um, the body's response is to go and again, try to stop it. So the first thing that happens is vasoconstriction. So it constricts, right? So if it constricts, that's why the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it actually allows that vessel to constrict a little bit and it moves the clot factors there. This is part of that coagulation and bleeding will eventually stop. But if the clot needs to form, so that's why we may need to help with it because if we apply direct pressure, we help to allow that clot to build up. We may need to use a tourniquet to also um, occlude off that bleeding from that area. It's almost like you're shutting, you're, you are, you're shutting it off so that you can allow the clot to develop. Now, hemophilia um, is a process or a disease that actually is where the patient lacks some clotting factors. So therefore, they may bleed spontaneously. And um, no matter what, any injury that they have is really considered to be really serious and they need to be transported immediately. Now, we've talked a lot about external bleeding, and now we get into more of that internal bleeding, like where are we starting to run into problems? Realize that your body, again, has a lot of cavities and spaces that are inside there. So we have to try to account for the mechanism of injury and realize that the abdomen itself, just as an example, can have a significant amount of blood in it before it actually starts to show any outward signs for us. So a rule of thumb is that anybody who is presenting in a shocky condition and it most likely has been related to some form of trauma, then you have to consider that they have internal bleeding most likely in that abdominal cavity. So it can cause hypovolemic shock. Again, we're talking about the low blood volume that has been uh, as a result of uh, you know some type of bleeding in this case. So conditions that may cause some internal bleeding could be a stomach ulcer, right? So a stomach ulcer perforates and we have a massive amount of blood loss. Livers can be lacerated from both blunt and penetrating trauma. There could be a ruptured spleen, and this is not an uncommon thing in a lot of blunt force trauma. Broken bones, and really when you start taking a look at this, um, you know, ribs are, the more that they break, you're talking about maybe 250 uh, milliliters of blood per rib, and we don't know how many they have broken. And a femur is talking massive amounts as well as what a pelvic fracture is going to be. 
So internal bleeding, look for any type of bruising that may be there and go back through and take a look at the, what the mechanism of injury is. And we also want to go back and remember that when we're doing a secondary assessment, we're doing a, a detailed secondary assessment from head to toe on individuals who can't answer their questions, right? If they have an, any form of an altered mental status, they re automatically require to have a secondary assessment from head to toe. Um, so if that's the case, any area that you're looking at, whether it be a detailed secondary assessment or you're doing a focused exam, we are using a mnemonic, which is DCAP BTLS. Again, we heard about this in patient assessment, and I'll just bring up again that if you were to walk into an emergency room and tell them that, hey, they have no DCAP BTLS to this area, they're going to look at you like you have two heads. And main reason is, is because this is a mnemonic to help us remember what's happening. Right, So we look for deformities. We look for contusions and abrasions. We look for punctures. Um, we look for burns, tenderness. We look for some lacerations, and we look for swelling. And, you know, when you really take a look at this, these are the things that we're truly looking for because that's when you touch that area, that's what we're talking about. Um, so for if my students are listening, one of the things that I always talk about every time you do a detailed assessment, if you do, you go to a body part and you look, you listen and you feel. Um, can I look at it? Absolutely. Can I feel it? Well, I'm touching it. And now can I hear anything in that area? So if I can hear anywhere, you know, if I can put a stethoscope on their chest, I can listen to their heart. I can listen to their lungs. If I'm dealing with their abdomen, do I need to listen to bowel sounds to see if they're there? Again, these are things that are mnemonics and, and just memory resources that you put into your nice little toolbox inside your head so that you can help see what's happening. We also take a look at, um, you know, what is the illness issue that may have occurred? Are people telling us that, um, you know, I have a history of ulcers and now they're pale, diaphoretic? Um, could they have somebody that is potentially bleeding from the colon? Are we talking about a gastrointestinal bleed? Um, if you're talking about any female who's having abdominal pain and they're between the ages of 9 and 99, good or bad way to put that, but you got to think of an ectopic pregnancy, right? Um, aneurysms, you can have uh, multiple aneurysms, and we're usually talking somewhere along that aorta, and if it breaks or it starts to leak, we can have some significant problems there. Usually with any type of internal bleeding, though, you do see a lot of pain. Um, people may have some form of distension, but again, as I said about uh, you know dealing with the abdomen, it may take a significant amount of blood before you start to see distension. And let's just deal with reality. You got uh, some gentlemen that are out there that, quite frankly, have a very large um, beer belly. And um, as a result of that, how do you know that it's distended versus just their normal reaction? So sometimes things in books and podcasts like this make things sound like, oh, just look for the distension. But it's tough. So I'm going to be the first one to tell you that it's tough, right? You got to assess your patients the best of your ability. Look for the hematomas. Look for bruising or ecchymosis that you may see. Um, look at any bleeding that is coming from any type of open injury. Um, this could tell you what's happening. Maybe we're talking about, or I'm sorry, you know, we could also talk about bleeding from any type of body opening, whether it comes from the mouth or the nose, the rectum. Um, you could be talking about hematuria, which is pretty common, um, which would be blood in the urine. 
or is there a vaginal bleeding in, in women? Um, and this could be something that is non-menstrual, right? So if they're having vaginal bleeding, one of the first questions you would ask is, is this part of your normal um, menstrual cycle? Hemostasis, which is um, dealing with vomiting blood. You know, is it bright red, dark red? Is it appear to have coffee grounds to it? That usually is giving you a great indication. This is more gastrointestinal. Melina is more of a black, foul-smelling, um, tarry type dig uh, um, stole that we would be dealing with. Um, and this is usually indicating that this is some form of digested blood. Look for the pain and guarding and the swelling as we talked about earlier. And if you have some broken ribs, you're usually talking about some bruises over that, um, the lower part of the chest. But also feel for any type of that distension of the abdomen. Is it really firm? Because it could tell you whether or not there's any um, potential internal uh, hemorrhage that's also occurring as well. Again, hypoperfusion is dealing with that individual that we're talking about who is in shock. So we're talking about in these cases here, we're talking about hypovolemic shock. So what are we going to do here? Right. Well, we already talked about the fact that you want to go back and take a look during your assessment of mechanism of injury. And when you get into your sample history, some things that you really need to pay attention to include the fact that we should be asking about any type of blood thinners. Um, we know them as anticoagulants. Find out about blood thinners. Let's find out if they don't have anybody to tell us what's happening. Um, maybe we need to look for a medic alert tag or pull up their cell phone and take a look to see if there's any medications that are there. Um, when you're trying to control any external hemorrhage, um, we are making sure that we're going to follow three processes, right? The first one is going to be direct pressure. It is the most effective way to control any type of external bleeding. You typically have um, your hands that are already gloved walking in. And if you walk in and you see blood spurting from a leg, immediately you should put your gloved hand over that wound and apply direct pressure. Um, you have another hand to potentially get out some uh, gauze, 4x4s, or you know some type of uh, other dressing so that you can put it on there. But um, really, your goal is to really try to stop that immediately. So you can utilize the, uh, you know, the sterile dressings. You can apply bulk, bulky dressings. And then here you're looking at trying to get everything controlled with direct pressure. If you get that taken care of, you usually firmly wrap some type of uh, roller bandage around that area. You make it tight enough to really help to control the bleeding. But you should also be able to feel for a distal pulse, right? So you don't want to put it on so tight that it occludes the distal pulse. This is a pressure dressing, not a tourniquet. If you're talking about using something like a hemostatic agent, so one of the ones that we see happening more frequently are going to be the gauze rolls that are impregnated with some form of a hemostatic agent. They usually respond by some type of heat. And the cool thing about the hemostatic agents is that they promote clotting. So I want you to keep in mind a very important role. First off, when I hold direct pressure over somebody's wound, I hold direct pressure with a gauze 4x4, we'll say, right? If that soaks through, I add another one on top of it. 
If that soaks through, I continue to add on to it. I never remove it because I don't want to remove the clot. The opposite is true for a hemostatic agent. With a hemostatic agent, when that device or that um, application of maybe a gauze 4x4 that is a hemostatic agent, if that becomes soaked through with blood, I need to get rid of it and put a new one on. And the reason I'm putting a new one on is because the hemostatic agent itself has to come in contact with the blood to enable the clotting factors to occur. Okay, So it is a little change than what people are usually used to. If those don't work, then you start looking at things such as a tourniquet. Right. So the tourniquet is useful for making sure that we stop bleeding of an extremity. And right now, the tourniquets that we're using are going to be used for extremities. So you're talking the arms and the legs. They do not go around the neck. They do not go onto the chest. They don't go onto the hips, anything like that. We're talking that these tourniquets are going to be put in a place in which they are going to be in an extremity. Commercial tourniquets are the ones that you should be utilizing um, since uh, some um, bad things have happened in, our, in, in the world. We see more and more people with tourniquets and particularly commercial tourniquets. Absolutely, we should all have those commercial tourniquets readily available. But if you don't, if you're in a situation in which, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Look, here's the reality. The literature supports the fact that you can use a non-commercial tourniquet when you absolutely need to. The key to any tourniquet, though, is the wrapping, or I'm sorry, the uh, twisting of it. So if I put a triangular bandage onto a patient, I immediately tighten it down as hard as I can, and then I need to take some kind of rod and twist it. So I've heard a lot of people that will say, you know, you never ever want to do this. Well, you have two choices, folks. You have a choice to either let these people bleed to death or you have a choice to try and stop them. And I'm going to go off the chance that I'm going to try and stop it without making it worse. So, um, you know, it it. It is something that is out there. The science is um, pretty, I don't want to say it's pretty split, but it just depends on who you talk to about different things. So that's the stance that we're going to go off of uh, off of my podcast. And again, if you notice on all mine, is my opinions only, right? So uh, I can tell you what I believe and what I believe my interpretation of the science is. So anyway, when you apply a tourniquet to an area, you need to make sure that you're not putting it directly over a joint, um, that you always do it proximal to the injury. So it's going to be above it. It should be close to it, but it should always be above it. And you want to make sure that it is tightly secured. And don't ever use a rope or a belt because these things are going to be too narrow and it'll actually cause more problems. Um, you may have to put some padding under the tourniquet to protect the tissues, um, and they may actually help with some type of compression, but, um, never, ever cover a tourniquet with any type of bandage. And once you put the tourniquet on, you're going to record the time, but do not loosen it at all. You, in fact, you may have to actually apply another one and it's going to go above that first tourniquet. So, we talked about those bleeding control issues, right? Well, one of the other things that helps with bleeding control but also helps with orthopedic injuries is splinting. So there's a couple different types of splints that we would take a look at. Air splints are things that could actually help with some type of that internal or external bleeding. Depends on where it's at. Um, also can be utilized to immobilize fractures. 
Um, rigid splints really also help immobilize those fractures, and those are usually like board splints. And um, usually putting uh, a splint on somebody does help reduce um, some of their uh, pain because they may not have to move it around as much. And they also don't have to support it, so it allows those muscles to relax a little bit. Now, does it cause damage if you don't do that? Most likely not. Um, the science is not 100% uh, clear on it, but it's pretty darn clear that um, it does not increase mortality or morbidity, meaning that it doesn't increase death or injury if a splint is not done. And one of the reasons to keep that in mind is that if we're dealing with somebody who has a multi-system trauma, the patient's in bad shape, um, we're not going to spend the time to immobilize or splint those fractures as much as we would worrying about transporting them to the hospital. So those are patients that we typically place on a backboard and we essentially just say that we've splinted them, we've splinted the whole body. So... Other splints that you may end up dealing with, there's a formable splint. There's one that is out on the market that, uh, in, and I'm not going to give you the name. People will call it a SAM splint, but they uh, that's a, a brand name. So I'm not pushing that versus another, um, but it is a formable splint. So it's something that actually allows you to um, really form it. These other things we also used to call ladder splints. Those were actually something that was also a formable splint as well. Um, so splinting actually uh, can help prevent any type of further damage, as I said earlier. And no matter what you do, there are some general principles when it comes to splinting, right? So number one would be to make sure that you remove any clothing from that area um, so that you can really inspect it. You need to make sure that you identify whether or not they have uh, circulation, motor, and sensation. We call that CMS. Um, you want to cover up any wounds with some type of dry, sterile dressing before you actually put a splint on. Um, don't move the patient before splinting that extremity unless there's really some immediate danger to you or the patient. And be sure that you stabilize the joints above and below. So um, that's a big one there. Anytime that you were that you were putting a splint on, you need to make sure that you're you're stabilizing the joint above and below the fracture. Um, don't put anything over the fracture, right? So if you're tying on a splint, you don't want to go directly over that um, fractured area, which is easier said than done. Um, but with injuries that are around that joint, be, sta be sure to stabilize the bones um, as much as you can. Pad all of those rigid splints. So um, if you take a look at your commercially available splints, there's usually a harder side, which you can um, almost knock on it, and you can hear the, the piece of wood that's in there. And then there's also some forms that are actually padded. Um, you know, if it's a fracture of a long bone, sometimes you have to uh, get manual traction to align it back into place. And um, it's really if you have any type of uh, resistance to trying to realign a limb at that point, put it in a neutral position, you splint it in the area that it's found. So just keep it in that spot. Um, when in doubt, if you're not sure whether or not to splint, well, you just made up your mind, right? Because if you doubt or you question whether or not you should do this, then you probably should. So with rigid splints, those things are going to be really more of a, of a firm material. As I said, it was going to be more wood. So, um, you know, there's two times in which, uh, 
you want to splint the limb in the position that's found, and that's if the deformity is really severe. And if you encounter any type of resistance or extreme pain when you're trying to get things back into position, right? You're trying to put them back into a neutral inline position. That's one of the things with splints. We talked a little bit about those formable splints, and air splints kind of go into that as well. There's another one that's called a vacuum splint. Um, so those things can also be turned into uh, um, a form, or also a form of a formable splint. And they really can help form around that area. And it does help reduce some of the area, or reduce some of the pain because there's not a lot of movement that may actually occur with it at that point. Traction splinting, the only bones that we are going to use traction splinting for are going to be our femur. And um, it really is designed to uh, realign the shaft of the femur. People are going to complain of a lot of pain. There's going to be some swelling. You'll see deformity that's typically at the mid-thigh area. And when it's, a, when it's applied correctly, um, it actually helps realign those bones back into alignment, and it relaxes the thigh muscles so that they're not in spasm all the time. Really, the goal here of inline traction stabilization is to really stabilize the fracture itself. Um, it helps to prevent some time uh, or some form of excessive movement. And we also want to make sure that we're reducing the uh, neurovascular compromise that could be there. And that means that, you know, pulse motor sensory again or circulation motor sensory um, is what we're also looking for. So you don't use traction splints, though, for any upper extremity injuries. We don't use um, them for any type of injuries that may involve the knee. If you're suspecting that there's a pelvic fracture, you don't want to use it as well. Um, they cannot have any distal bone separation, um, such as a, um, a lower leg or a foot or an ankle injury. So keep in mind that really when you're using a a traction splint, it comes down to it is the femur itself that you're taking a look at. You're going to have to grasp that um, uh, the foot at the end of that injured limb firmly. And once you start pulling traction, you don't let go until the splint is put in alignment. Um, so if you pull that stuff together, really what you're going to end up doing is there's two traction splints that we would deal with. One is a hair traction splint, which is going to go underneath that leg. It'll actually help secure um, proximal uh, to the uh, pelvis or to the hip bone. And distally, it's going to secure um, to the ankle area. Another one would actually um, be a Sager splint. And a Sager splint actually goes between the legs. And it also is then going to be secured um, proximal at the pelvic area and it's also going to be secured distally at the ankles so that's why if you think about contraindications to those it's just going to be the bone issues distally or a broken bone above where they're trying to secure um, does it matter if it's an open or a closed fracture the answer to that is no if it's an open or a closed fracture um, you're still going to realign that with a hair traction splint as long as the other contraindications don't work or are not present um, so if the other things that you can use is um, so if you're talking about a 
pelvic fracture, not a hip fracture, but a pelvic fracture. So remember that the hip is actually the joint. The pelvis itself is something where it can, if it's fractured, or you're suspecting a fracture, um, it has the ability to potentially reduce some type of hemorrhage because pelvic binders actually pull things together and it's a way in which it can actually um, apply some form of direct pressure. Now there are hazards in doing splinting, right? You can't do anything on people without having some form of a hazard. Um, one of those things is that we may actually compress the nerve um, and tissue and blood vessels and cause a problem. There could be a delay if we do improper splinting at the wrong time. It could be something that can cause uh, people to die because we didn't affect or solve their airway breathing circulation problems. There could be a reduction of distal circulation. That's why we check it before and after we splint. And there also could be just injuries because of excessive movement um, if we don't secure it properly. So what are you going to do with a lot of these other issues as well as um, dealing with fractures elsewhere, right? Well, bleeding elsewhere as well as fractures elsewhere um, may include like maybe skull fractures or facial injuries. Um, maybe people have problems with their nose, right? Um, so when you start dealing with people that have this in and blood, or yeah, I'm sorry, nosebleed, also known as epitaxis, is pretty common emergency. Usually um, it, there's enough blood loss that could lead to shock, but not an awful uh, long period of time does that occur. But you may see that there could be a, um, some blood loss. And really the biggest thing here is that if it's non-traumatic, we want to make sure that we're um, keeping them sitting upright we're going to apply some direct pressure to the nose by squeezing it, pinching the nostrils together, and you can have them lean forward. Do not have them lean, lean their head back. That just allows for um, fluid drainage to go down their throat and cause more of a problem for us. Um, if you're talking about a head injury where there is bleeding from the nose or ears, this may be something that is indicating that there is a skull fracture. And it, a lot of times at that point, it's very difficult to control. Um, but in this case, you do not really want to stop the blood flow. Um, you want to try to catch it. And the reason here is just put some loose coverings around those areas because they're trying to, they're pushing out um, uh, the fluid that may be coming from the brain itself. This is one way in which the, the body is trying to relieve some of that pressure. Um, when you're talking about some issues such as closed closed injuries, such as uh, you know sprains and strains and those types of things and contusions, really there's not a lot of medical care that we're going to be doing. Um, you will notice that there may have some swelling or bruising. And one thing that they can keep in mind is called the Rice's mnemonic, um, and that would include rest, um, ice compression, elevation, and splinting. And that kind of goes along with the things that we would do, right? So if I have a patient who is experiencing some form of a, a fracture, um, I need to lay them down. I can apply some ice. I can apply some compression if I need to for applying that splint, um, elevate it. And of course, you know, then we're putting a splint on. So you can use some of those as well. But again, just treating, even treating yourself, you could use the rice mnemonic. 
But watch for anybody that you're treating for, uh, you know, a lot of anxiety, uh, check for um, changes in her mental status. Are you talking about increases in her heart rate? Um, check out their skin condition, monitoring their blood pressure. So basically what we're trying to do is trend their vital signs over time and it can help you identify any signs and symptoms of, of impending shock. A couple other areas that you may want to uh, consider that we have uh, to change just a little bit is that if we're talking about some type of abdominal wound, so we could have an open abdominal wound that may expose the internal organs. This is called an evisceration, and this is where the organs are actually protruding through the wound. So we want to make sure that we cover up this wound with some type of sterile gauze, and usually it should be uh, moistened so that it doesn't stick to it. And then after we secure that gauze, we use it, we cover that area with an occlusive dressing. So that occlusive dressing may actually be something like saran wrap, um, a plastic wrap, so that it can go around um, that area you're going to tape it on. And what you're doing is you're actually trying to keep the heat and humidity in there so that um, the organs don't dry out and they actually are going to, uh, we're providing some form of a, of a protection just like the skin would. If there's an impaled object, we kind of talked about that a little earlier, unless it's in the uh, mouth area where it's obstructing the airway or it's interfering with CPR, those are the only times you take it out. Otherwise, um, you may have to shorten a, um, a, a impaled object so that it's going to be easier for you to transport. If you're talking any form of a neck injury, these things can be... Um, um, dangerous as well because it can allow air to get into the wound and cause an air embolism. So just think of like a little air bubble that's traveling through the body that has now entered um, from that neck area. Well, if that's the case, um, it can pull enough air in and may cause a significant problem. Here you want to make sure that you're actually covering this area up with an occlusive dressing. Again, we're trying to limit the amount of air that can go in there. Um, manual pressure um, may need to occur, but remember, do not compress both carotid arteries at the same time because you'll impair circulation to the brain and um, you'll cause the patient to actually have... Uh, uh, significant risk for a stroke and most likely you will cause them to become unresponsive and because it's involving the neck you're going to have to um, put a cervical collar on them as well. Um, likewise another area for uh, dealing with a um, uh, like a neck injury would be the chest area. So a chest area, if you're talking about an individual who has a sucking chest wound where they're going to feel uh, or you may actually see some bubbling coming from the chest area, this is again another time in which you want to use an occlusive dressing. You're using something like plastic um, that would actually go over that wound and you could tape it on three sides. And the idea of three sides here would be to allow the air to come out but um, if you taped it on four, that's okay too. Um, all you need to do is if you start to see that they have indications of a tension pneumothorax is just burp it. Basically open up one side of that and allow the air to come back out and then you can reseal it again. Um, if you're talking about maybe, you know, uh, people have been bitten by a dog or, um, you know, a human, really the biggest thing here is to make sure that you clean that off. Um, make sure that if it is a uh, dog or anything like that, that you're going to make sure that this is a reportable incident. And they got to be worried about um, getting rabies tested as well. 
human bites, you know, the human mouth is pretty disgusting in and of itself. So you want to make sure that um, you're cleaning that area off as well. You may need to immobilize and splint that area as well. And then they're probably going to need to have some antibiotic therapy in the, uh, in the hospital. So let's talk about burns, right? So we talked about everything in soft tissue injuries, but burns. So burns are one of the most serious and painful injuries of, of everything. Um, and a burn occurs when the body or a body part receives more radiated energy than it can absorb. And this is when it's going to cause injury. So potential sources for this include heat, uh, some toxic chemicals, and electricity. So although the burn may be the patient's most obvious injury, um, you need to make sure that you're doing a complete assessment to determine whether or not there's other serious injuries. Children, older patients, and those who have some type of chronic illnesses are going to be more likely to experience some form of shock from burn injuries itself. So let's identify why, right? So burns, as we said, are soft tissue injuries. And because they go over a larger area, um, they also, this is created or related to uh, radiation or thermal burns or electrical energy. Thermal burns usually occur when temperatures are higher than 111 degrees. And the severity of that thermal injury is going to be directly related to the temperature, what the concentration of that energy or that burn was, um, the amount of heat energy possessed by the object. So, you know, are you holding something that's truly burning or is it, you know, you were very close to it? I mean, what was the duration of the exposure? These things are progressive. And the greater the heat energy, the deeper the wound is going to be. So exposure time also is another factor. So thermal injury can occur to patients who are unresponsive or paralyzed from heat sources. This could even include things such as heating pads or maybe even a heat lamp. So one of the complications that comes up and why we deal with uh, shock potentially in these folks is because when the skin is damaged, right, there, it is now allowing things to come into the body that were never there before. So they're at very high risk for infection. Number one, it's allowing pathogens to come in. Number two, hypothermia, because we know that the skin itself has been that barrier to help with uh, keeping us warm, right? Um, so that has now gone away. And hypovolemia, because we now allow fluid to leak out. Um, and if you think of a blister, that's the same type of deal. When that blister breaks, fluid comes out. So we do lose fluid as well. And this is what is leading us down the pathway of looking at shock. So those are things that can become complications for folks. Additionally, um, burns to the airway are really of significant importance. I mean, because um, the uh, mucosa that is in there, they lose the ability to uh, uh, really be moist, and therefore they start to swell. And when they swell, it can cause a lot of airway obstruction. Circumferential burns, burns that go around the chest can compromise breathing because you can't expand your chest. Um, other circumferential burns, um, particularly to an extremity, can lead to some compartment syndrome, which we learned about earlier. So if you're suspecting that somebody has this burn, you definitely need to look for ALS backup because I don't want to say that there are always hidden issues, but you need to really assess the individual to find out what else is happening with these severe burns. By the way, if you go back to the hypothermia, let me bring up one little thing. 
And that would be that if you had a sunburn, you will notice that you do have a tendency to feel cold. And that's because of the burn itself. That is a actually a superficial burn. And we'll talk more about those here in just a minute. So there are some factors that you can help identify the severity of the burn. Um, what is the depth of the burn and what is the extent of the burn? And we're going to talk about how we can handle those things. Other areas that we need to make sure that are critical locations for burns that we really have to account for, they include the face, the upper airway, their hands, their feet, and their genitalia. So if they have any pre-existing medical conditions, we really need to find out about that. If the patient is less than 5 or older than 55, there are also going to be um, some pretty significant factors here. Burns to the face, again, we talked about that a little bit ago, of we have to worry about airway management things. Um, there can be a loss, particularly because of the hands and feet, of a lot of scarring, and now they're going to have a lot of um, a potential loss of functions to those areas. So we're going to go into just talking about burns in the uh, depth right now. Okay, so uh, you will hear people talk about first, second, and third degree burns, and that is now going to be considered older terminology. Our newer terminology is going to be, and I will use both of them just to try to help you out here, is going to be superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness burns. So our superficial burns are going to be those that involve the top layer of skin. It's going to be the burn that goes over the epidermis. This is something that you would see that is pretty painful. Typically doesn't blister. It could, but typically doesn't blister. Um, and an example of this is what I had just talked about earlier would be sunburn. Most people have experienced sunburn. A second degree, or our new terminology, partial thickness burns, involves the epidermis and it starts to get into the dermis. Now, these burns don't destroy the entire thickness of the skin, um, nor is it the subcutaneous tissue injured, but it causes the skin to uh, typically look moist, it's mottled, and it really starts to turn white to a red color. And this is usually when blisters are present. And it does cause an intense amount of pain because it has now exposed the nerve endings to the air and it, it, that's where it has actually caused some of the damage. Now, full thickness burns, or the third degree burns, are going to be through all layers of the skin. And they actually can get down into the muscle and bone, and in some cases, even down into the internal organs. Now, this area is more dry, it's leathery, and may appear to be more uh, white, but usually it's almost a charred appearance. And if the nerve endings have been destroyed, a severely burned area, uh, they may have no feeling there. So, but keep in mind that the surrounding area um, may be very painful for them because it hasn't gone into that, that location. Um, so remember that you could have multiple burns just in one area. You could go from the outer layer of being a superficial. As it gets closer to the middle, um, it can now become partial thickness. And then finally in the middle, it could be a full thickness burn. So that's why the pain can be substantial to a lot of people. Airway burns, absolutely serious. Take a look inside the patient's nose. See if there's any singed nostril hairs. Look for soot that may be around the mouth and the nose. Um, if they're talking to you, see whether or not they have any type of hoarseness. 
Um, and these patients really need to be considered to be transported to the hospital as quickly as possible. Now, a problem with these is that um, you don't want to always, you don't want to aggravate their airway because if you aggravate their airway in these cases, you may actually cause um, a lot of spasm here. So this is one of those that as soon as they have a, a problem with their airway, you really need to consider um, getting ALS there and probably meeting them in route as well. So how do we measure the extent of the burns? Well, this is where the roll of nines and the roll of palms comes in. So a roll of palms is pretty cool. It estimates the surface area um, of basically you take the patient's palm. So what the palm would be, um, which is about 1% of the patient's total body surface area. So that would be the roll of palms. So if you could take their palm and you can place it over the burn area each time that you could visually place it over that area, you're putting 1%. The roll of nines is a way to really look at the way that the body is sectioned off. And each time that you do this, this is actually looking at something for 9%. So you're talking about, you know, um, different proportions for children and adults. And um, you're talking, you know, could it be 9% of the front uh, for, for an arm? And then you go to the back, it's another 9%. You're talking about the full torso for an adult is 18%. But if it's only the chest, then it's 9 um, And then go to the back. So really encourage you to take a look at the... Um, the diagrams that are available for the rule of nines to try to add some of those together. And um, this podcast doesn't really go into a lot of the rule of nines. It just makes you aware that um, that information is readily available. And these are things that we need to take a look at um, to measure uh, the severity of the burn. So as I'm talking through my head now, maybe that's another podcast we need to take a look at. So thermal burns, as we said earlier, are going to be those things that are caused by heat. And usually these things are from some type of open flame. But again, they could be from scalds. You know, I've, I've grabbed a pan off the stove without paying attention and found out that, that could be a problem. Um, scald burn is usually seen in kids and handicapped individuals because uh, this happens usually when they're cooking. People can come in contact with those hot objects. And this is where they develop that contact burn. Um, they can, you know, rarely are these things deep unless the patient was prevented from drawing away from that hot object, like they just held it on them. Steam burns can cause some scalding. Um, so you probably had some minor steam burns, I'm sure, in your life just by removing the covering off of a microwave uh, after you've microwaved some food or, uh, you know, you had a teapot that was going and, and the steam was coming out and you, you know, went to reach for it and you felt the um, the steam as it was going over your arm. A flash burn is something that's usually uh, produced by an explosion. So this is where people may have had an ex uh, a brief exposure and this is just with a lot of heat. Lightning strikes can cause a flash burn as well. Um, so management of these things is the first thing to do is to stop the bleeding or I'm sorry, not stop the bleeding, stop the burning. So you stop the burning and this means that you need to cool the burn area. So here's one way that I will definitely tell you that you need to, uh, consider this, right? So I've watched television shows and I've watched people cook at cook-offs and I have seen, um, expert barbecue people or grill masters say that after they cook the steak, they have to account for the time 
that it is taken off the grill, placed into a container, covered, and then taken to the judges to eat. It is still cooking. Even though we removed it from the source, it is still cooking. So the body is the same way. Um, so we're not saying that you pour water over them. Absolutely not. But um, it is necessary to make sure that the burning process has stopped. And you think about it, this is one of those things that happens whenever you go into the shower after you've had a sunburn. That's when you realize how bad everything is because you've been cooking all this time. Um, so stopping the burning, you got to cool off the burn and make sure that you remove um, all the jewelry. So how in the world would I do that? Well, dry, sterile dressings are the number one thing. Um, so that's how you would end up handling that. Um, if you're talking about how to cool that off, um, there are some products that are out on the market today to help with that. And it doesn't cause hypothermia, um, but it does help cool the burn. Um, so, um, you know, those products are readily available. And um, all you got to do is look for some burn gel that is available. Um, it's not really a gel, but um, that's one of the uh, brands that, that are out there. So they're gel-like devices. How would you get the jewelry off? Well, nice little hint about trying to get jewelry off of anybody would be that if you're at somebody's house, uh, you go to get the jewelry off. Hopefully, you can get it off without a problem. But if you can't get jewelry off, even if this is dealing with fractures, taking some Windex, uh, that w even a generic window cleaner, spraying it on the uh, skin around that area, and it will actually help slide that jewelry off. Okay, it, It's a true thing. It does work. I've done it a couple times myself myself for people. Um, inhalation burns, we talked about those a little bit ago, saying that you got to make sure that you're looking for um, any type of inhalation injury and listen for the strider. That strider is going to be that that uh, uh, type sound that you're going to end up hearing, and they may actually have a hoarse voice. Uh, singed nasal hairs look for burns on their face as well, and they may have uh, carbon uh, particles that are in their sputum. Folks with this usually applying some cool mist aerosol therapy or even better, um, which you may have is humidified oxygen to that area. So this is when you can hook up your humidifier and keep in mind that humidified oxygen is going to be typically nasal cannula, no more than typically about six liters. Most of these humidifiers don't like to go above six, um, so you might see that it um, can cause a little bit of a problem. Keep an eye on it. Um, applying an ice pack to the throat to reduce some swelling, um, it may actually provide some time for you. Um, look for carbon monoxide. You know, if there's a burn, uh, particularly in people who are all in the same place, um, you got to start worrying about carbon monoxide poisoning as well. And um, hydrogen cyanide, we talked about that stuff as well. We'll talk more about that stuff and toxicological issues. But really got to consider that those are going to be problems as well if they have had any type of inhalation burn or they were in a closed environment. If you're dealing with a chemical burn, one of the things that you need to make sure that you do is identify um, that you're not going to be exposed to, actually to any of these. You don't want to be exposed to it. The eyes are going to be really vulnerable to chemicals. So uh, you really want to find out what the chemical was, what the concentration of that chemical may have been, um, how long were they actually exposed to it, and then um, really look for ways in which we can um, prevent exposure to hazardous materials. Um, so you're looking at making sure that these patients may be decontaminated. Um, wear appropriate chemical resistant gloves and eye protection when you're caring for these folks. And if you're talking about management of these burns, 
Um, you're talking about um, making sure that you stop the burning process by getting that chemical off the patient. With dry chemicals, you're brushing those things off. Um, get rid of the patient's clothing. This includes all the way down to their shoes, um, their stockings, their gloves, and any jewelry that may be there as well. Um, and then don't come in contact with that chemical itself. You may have to flood the area with a lot of water for 15 to 20 minutes, even after the patient says that the burning pain has stopped. You got to make sure that all that stuff is off of them. Do a great decon prior to loading any of these patients in the ambulance. You do not want to take this stuff with you, number one, in the ambulance, and number two, you don't need to be taking it into the hospital. Electrical burns themselves um, could be as a result of high or low energy voltage. So if it's a high voltage burn, usually is when utility workers are in contact with the, with the power lines. But ordinary house outlets um, can actually cause severe burns as well as cardiac arrhythmias. So those can be problems as well. If you're talking about um, electricity, the way that it is going to flow in is that um, there is going to be an uh, electrical source to the ground. So there's going to be an insulator, a conductor, and that conductor really, our human body, is a great object for a lot of those things. So look for the electrical current. It's going to be magnified. Look at the voltage. Um, influences the seriousness of these burns and in this case our safety is really uh, very paramount because we're not going to go over and try to take these people off of an electrical outlet without disconnecting the power first off. If you're dealing with people who have that electrical burn and they are in cardiac arrest then you are looking to begin CPR and use the AED. Um, it may be uh, able to be necessary to really do the defibrillation, and it may actually help them out an awful lot. Um, but in particularly if you're looking at somebody who may have had a lightning strike, this is what we're going to call reverse triage. And reverse triage means that we treat the patients that are typically um, deceased or appear to be deceased um, first. Because if you have survived the initial lightning strike, um, you're most likely going to be doing okay. Um, it's the people that are already dead that we have to start taking care of. That's why they call it reversed triage. Tasers, um, really we've had uh, uh, police officers or law enforcement officers all over the, the country um, are utilizing or all over the world are utilizing um, tasers, non-lethal means of, of subduing a, uh, a individual. So they fire two small darts or electrodes that go into the patient's skin. And anything that is actually in between there is going to get the energy. So somewhere around 50,000 volts of, a, of, uh, of electricity is sent. And for the most part, these are, these are considered to be impaled objects. You have to follow through with your local protocols as to whether or not you're allowed to remove those. I can tell you in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we are not allowed to remove those. Um, and in some of the police jurisdictions that I have uh, dealt with, um, the only people that are allowed to remove them would be the certified instructors, ta the taser instructors. Um, they could remove them. So it is something that you really need to take a look at. But for the most part, um, they don't cause a lot of damage. Um, they, uh, I have not seen burns with them. There may be a couple reports that have had people that have been exposed to these things and have had some have complications. Um, but for the most part, it is truly dealing with what the underlying problem may be. 
Um, if they have an excited delirium, usually those are things that are associated with some drug issues. Um, they may have some psychological problems ongoing as well. And um, if they have been using these with true excited delirium, these things have also been been as a result of uh, or caused uh, some dysrhythmias in places, in which case you have to treat them as uh, you would any type of cardiac arrest. Radiation exposure. Um, while radiation exposure um, has become more than a, a theoretical issue because of more radioactivity or radioactive materials that's being used in, in our industries, um, it does pose a potential threat to people. Um, so we have to determine that there's been a radiation exposure and then attempt to determine whether um, ongoing exposure continues to exist. So there are three types of radiation um, particles that we need to take a look at, alpha, beta, and gamma. And the alpha are really those things that have little penetrating in, uh, energy, and usually your skin is able to stop it. The beta is a lot uh, having greater uh, penetrating power and it can go much further than the alpha particles so it can penetrate the skin but the cool thing about it is is that it can be blocked by just wearing simple clothes right that's the great thing about it gamma is going to be where the threat is proportional to the wavelength so this penetrates a lot and it easily passes through the body in solid materials so x-rays are usually the things that you start taking a look at as it relates to gamma waves um, so if people have a sustained radiation exposure, don't, uh, they do not pose a risk to others. Um, however, there is a uh, incidence involving explosions where uh, patients may need to be uh, decontaminated. So those are things that we have to worry about. If you have somebody who has a radiation burn, you need to make sure that you wait for a hazmat team to decontaminate the patient. Most of these things can be just re, uh, decontaminated by having the patient remove their clothing. So therefore, you need to make sure that you're calling for additional resources, irrigating the wounds, um, treating their airway, breathing, and circulation. And of course, anytime that we limit our duration of exposure to these folks um, or to those areas is going to be paramount. So... I think that uh, that pretty much does it for three interrelated subject matters, bleeding control, or actually dealing with bleeding, soft tissue injuries, and um, dealing with orthopedic injuries. So um, I know it was a long episode, but I hope that you got a lot out of it, and uh, we'll see you again on another Tim Takeaway.